The following message was preached at Gospel City Church, a church that seeks to cast a gospel net for the people of Kuala Lumpur. Have you ever felt so sure about something only to find out you were wrong? Have we ever felt so confident about someone only to discover you've misjudged them? You know, we've all made incorrect assumptions before. Assumptions about where we last left our keys. Assumptions about a person's character. And it usually doesn't feel pleasant to be proven wrong. I remember in seminary, I took a class called Images of Christ in a novel. And the very first assignment was to write a one to two page paper describing Jesus. Through writing that paper, a lot of my assumptions got challenged. Because what seemed like a straightforward assignment turned out to be harder than I thought. Should I begin by describing his physical appearance? Is see like how the artists tend to portray him? A handsome, well-groomed, bearded Jewish man with a lamb in his arms? Or should I just write about his attributes? Compassionate, just, loving, merciful. You see, depending on our background, we are all drawn to certain image of Christ over others. But with our preference comes the danger. A danger of letting our preconceived notions about who Jesus is cloud our vision of him. A danger of allowing the ups and downs of life to cause us to misrecognize him for who he really is. This morning we're going to look at several depictions, images, ideas of Jesus in our passage. We're going to be doing that in two parts. We're going to look at first Jesus as fully misunderstood. And then the second part, Jesus as partially understood. After giving an extensive teaching on parables, Jesus, heads, Jesus leaves Capernaum and heads to his hometown. Now, it was a fine day in Nazareth. You know, people were going about their business, their farming, their trading, they're socializing. And maybe, let's say, one o'clock in the afternoon, Jesus and his disciples approached the village entrance. And some of the town folks gathered and said, Hey, is that a rabbi? You know, Shabbat is right around the corner. Let's just have him teach at the synagogue. Now, of course, it didn't take long for people to surround Jesus and throw questions at him. So he had to stop every few steps to address a particular teaching or concern, such that it took him an hour just to get to the synagogue. Now one hour passed. Two hours passed. More and more people gathered outside the building just to get a glance at this preacher. The crowd grew so big that eventually it drew the attention of the Roman officials and the religious leaders. Suddenly, a man dressed in a tunic, likely a teacher of the law, said, where 
does this, where did this man get his wisdom? Which theology school did he graduate from? By whose power does he conduct miracles and heal? See, that moment, whispers began to spread. Coincidentally, Jesus' old neighbor was there. I know this guy. You know, he, he's the son of the carpenter, Joseph. You know, there's no one else in town that makes yokes and plows other than this family. They used to live right next door to us. A man followed up and said, yeah, that's him, isn't it? You know, son of the woman Mary, uh, you know, brother of James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas. And someone else then said, wait a minute, come to think of it, I just saw his sisters in the market this morning. So how in the world could someone from such a rough background, someone with no special education, teach so well, counsel so wisely, and heal so effectively? The people could not understand this simply can't be true. Where does this man get his authority? Author Jen Wilkin calls what happens here small town syndrome. And let me read just a paragraph from her chapter. When you know a boy's mama and daddy, the church he went to, and the house he grew up in, and when you attend school with him from kindergarten through 12th grade, you feel able to quantify the limits of his potential with a fair level of accuracy. You know who will probably never amount to much? And when someone breaks out of your expectation, the shock is enough to feel local gossip for years to come. See, the Nazarenes felt they were the most qualified to quantify the limits of Jesus' potential. They could not allow Jesus to be more than who they thought him to be. And so they, quote, took offense at him. Ironically, they saw the words and actions of Jesus as a stumbling block through their faith without recognizing that the true obstacle is their own stubbornness. So aware of the crowd's hostility, Jesus says, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his household. So early in the parable of the sower, Jesus mentions how many will listen but will not understand his meaning. Many will hear the gospel, but will not respond. And here Jesus grieves the lack of understanding among the very people he grew up with. So knowing that conducting more miracles will cause his preaching to turn into a performance, Jesus leaves. But now let's turn our camera angle to a city called Tiberias on the southwest shore of Galilee, where Herod the Tetrarch ruled. Now, this is not the Herod that ordered the killing of the Jewish babies. He's already dead at this point, but his son. Herod Antipas is his name, and he is the ruler of the Galilean region. You know, Herod was just chilling in his palace one day when his servants came and said, Your Majesty, we have reports of more miraculous healing, this time on the southern side of the country. 
is that Jesus guy again, except thousands are trailing him this time. Herod was like, Jesus? No, no, no. You're mistaken. This is John the Baptist resurrected from the dead. That's quite an interesting comment considering John only preached and baptized people. He never conducted any miracles. So why then does Herod attribute the miracles in Jesus' ministry to John? Well, it turns out Herod and John have a bit of a history. See, Herod was married to a woman, a daughter of an Arabian king, as a form of political alliance. Except one day, he saw the brother, he saw the wife of his half-brother, Herodias, and immediately fell in love with her. So he divorced his first wife, which was not, as, not so much a problem yet, but he incestuously married his brother's wife. So here you have John, who not only rebukes Herod to his face, but on the outside is spreading news about a better kingdom of a Messiah, of a coming kingdom that will perhaps replace Herod's rule. So Herod hated John. He wanted to do anything he could to get rid of him, except he was afraid. He, he's a weak king. And he knows that his reign is already unstable. So he did one thing he could do, throw John into prison. Now some days later, Herod organized a birthday feast for himself. Herodias invites her daughter, Salome, a girl no more than 14 years old, to dance before the Lord and the kings, the lords and the kings. And with festive music, I would imagine, playing in the background, Herod drank cup after cup of wine and watched Salome move her body sensually. You know, this petty king eventually got so pleased that he thought he was some Persian king. He said, speak, young lady. Ask whatever you want, and I can give it to you. Well, Salome was happy, but puzzle. You know, at the end of the day, she's just a teenager who did what her mom told her to. So not knowing what to ask, Salome approaches Herodias, and Herodias knows what she wants. Because like Herod, Herodias hated John too. Now who is this guy to judge who I marry? Who does he think he is to spread negative news about me and my husband? So through Salome, Herodias gave the request. Give me the head of John the Baptist here on the platter. Now Herod was stunned. He thought it would just be some money or property. But the last thing a weak king wants is to appear weak and disappoint his guests. So Herod gave the order, and 30 minutes later, the servants brought John's head on the platter, and everybody cheered. And just like that, a prophet of the Lord died. Because Herod couldn't see Jesus for who he really is due to a superstitious fear. Herod was so terrified and so spiteful of John that he missed the mark on Jesus' identity 
and mission. So now we go to part two. Jesus as partially understood. Jesus as partially understood. So when Jesus heard Herod's response to his preaching and miracles, he heads to a quiet place to avoid drawing attention to himself. Without telling the crowds, he goes to the northeastern shore of Galilee with his disciples. Now, granted, it didn't take long for the crowds to notice that Jesus and his company were gone. One man yelled, hey, the rabbi, they're leaving to the other side. Let's go after them. So the crowd ran so fast that they got there way before Jesus and his company did. And by the time they, Jesus got there, there was probably thousands upon thousands of people who were waiting for him there. Some were coughing. Others were struggling to even walk. And others had difficulty breathing. Seeing the extent to which these people took to listen to the word and their faith in his power, Jesus then had compassion on them. And so one by one, he healed them and treated their disease. So by the time Jesus was done, it was probably about three o'clock in the afternoon. The disciples were starving. So were the audience. So Philip and Andrew approaches Jesus and said, Rabbi, there's no way around here. There's no place around here. You know, the closest restaurant is about an hour or so away. By the time we go there and get back, it'd be well past sunset. You know, there's, there's also way too many people for us. There's no way for us to feed all of them. Let, let's send them home so they can get their own food. Jesus' heart sank. Because here's a group who have been living and journeying with him the past few months. A group who also witnessed Jesus turning water into wine at Cana. Yet their first response was to send the people away. Jesus sighed and said, They need not go away. You give them something to eat. So a short, a short while later, the disciples returned with five cheap and coarse bread and two fish. Then we have a series of actions. Jesus told the crowd to sit down. He took the food, spoke a blessing, and handed to the disciples for them to distribute among the people. And you wouldn't believe what happens next. Row after row, pieces of bread and fish were handed out, yet the food never ran out. Two hours later, the disciples told every male in the family to report and bring in any leftovers they might have. And to their surprise, it amounted to a total of 12 baskets full of food. The feast prepared by the Messiah in an empty desert fed 5,000 men and probably 10,000 more women and children. Yet this miracle is more than just a description of God's display of his power through the sun. As one commentator writes, the 12 baskets of leftovers show us that the Messiah's supply is so lavish that even the scraps of his provision is enough to fill the needs of Israel. The same God who led Israel out of Egypt gave them manna and quail in the desert 
now feeds them in an empty place and has come to not just bring physical fulfillment, but true spiritual fulfillment. So by the time they were done, it was probably about six o'clock in the evening. You know, there were people in the crowd chanting, surely this man is the prophet who is to come into this world. So knowing that, suspecting that they were about to come and make him king, Jesus tells the disciples to leave first, to go to the other end, to Bethsaida, to wait for him there while he dismisses the crowd. Now, after much effort, the people finally left, and Jesus heads up a mountain by himself to pray. Now, the initial plan was for the disciples to wait there for however long Jesus needs to take care of his business, do what he needs to do, and come back. Yet by 10 o'clock, Jesus hadn't returned. So, uh, Simon, what, what do you think, bro? We, should we just leave the teacher here? And uh, Yeah, I, I think we can go. You know, I'm sure he'll find his way around. Well, we'll see him in the morning. So the disciples left on their own. Now, it was a foggy night. But things were going well at first. The boat was moving steadily, and they were set to reach their destination safely. Except all of a sudden, a strong wind blew and waves crashed against the boat. The disciples were terrified because at that point, the boat was already at the middle of the lake, far from any shore. So they wrote and wrote, and out of nowhere, they see a mysterious figure walking on the sea, coming towards them. They scramble. Hi! It is a ghost! But next, a strange, strangely, a familiar yet firm voice spoke out. Take heart. It is I. Do not be afraid. And recognizing that is the voice of Jesus, Peter says to him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. Command me to come to you on the water. This is remarkable because here is a fisherman who spent all his life on the oceans and he fully knows the danger of the waters. Yet he displays such trust in Jesus and asks the Lord, for an invitation. So at Jesus' command, Peter climbed out of the boat. First step out, didn't sink. Second step out, still afloat. Third step out, kept his balance. So step by step, Jesus got, uh, Peter got closer and closer to the Lord. Then suddenly, the wind, a strong wind blew and howled like a werewolf. A series of emotions began to rush into Peter's mind. Fear. Doubt. Anxiety. Will, will my Lord truly save me? Will, will he pick me up? Should I sink? Sadly, the faith that was strong enough to get Peter out of the boat and walking on the water was not strong enough for him to keep going. It crumbled at the sight of a storm. Jesus said, O oh, you of little faith, 
Why did you doubt? And what happens next reminds us of Psalm chapter 18, verse 16. He sent from on high, he took me. He drew me out of many waters. So Jesus pulled Peter out of the ocean, and they all got into the boat. And when they got there, the storm ceased. Immediately, every disciple on the boat knelt, went on their knees and worshipped Jesus. You truly, you are the Son of God. What a remarkable statement. Except it's not that remarkable when we put the disciples' faith in the larger context. Because time and time again, the gospel shows us that the disciples understand only in parts. It's always comprehension mixed with misapprehension. And we soon will see them return to a pattern of confusion and doubt. What we see here, like Peter, the disciples at best demonstrate partial understanding. They certainly did not think that Jesus was a divine man. They, of course, didn't know that he was, his, he was here to die on the cross. But the disciples are not alone, because as soon as they got to Gennesaret, the locals recognized Jesus. And so from house to house, they spread word that the rabbi who conducts miracles and heals is here. And so the sick approached Jesus and, like the woman with emerge, begged to touch the fringe of Jesus' cloak. And even though their conception of Jesus was nothing more than a miracle worker at that point, their faith was enough to get them healed. Now, towards the end of my images of Christ in a novel class, students were given an opportunity to earn extra credit by visiting one of the five Roman Catholic churches that my professor chose. No, we weren't there to attend Mass. We were there simply to stare at the stained glass on the windows and write a reflection paper on how Jesus is portrayed. See, in every Roman Catholic church, you will see some depiction of the crucifixion. You know, Jesus is shown with sorrow, and the figures of the Virgin Mary, St. John the Apostle, and the other mourners surround the foot of the cross. These are vivid depictions, and these pieces of art combine to illustrate key moments in Jesus' life. Now, in today's passage, we've also come across several depictions of Jesus. Herod, Nazarenes, the disciples, the crowd, each had their own idea of who Jesus was that stopped them from responding to him. And friends, the truth is you and I are not immune from the same error of mislabeling Christ, from the same error of letting our presuppositions miss, causes to miss the mark on who he is. So what is keeping you from responding to Jesus in the right way? What is stopping you from resting in the gospel? 
You know, maybe like the Nazarenes, it's familiarity. Many of us here grew up in the church. We've been to camps, conferences, workshops. Some of us have even taken classes from seminary. Yet we often don't see how our preconceived notions about Jesus can blur our vision of him. You know, we, depending on the culture we're raised in, we have a certain image of Christ that we are more attached to. And we become stark when we stumbly insist that God's glory can only be displayed in a certain theological system, a certain denomination, or a certain author. But maybe, like Herod, it's fear. See, when the gospel directly confronts the philosophy, the purpose, and path that we've set up for our lives, Jesus becomes a threat. We hold on to the idols that we've crafted at all costs of missing God's greater purpose. But maybe like Peter and the disciples, it's not so much fear or familiarity, but the circumstances of life. When you're hungry, all you want is to be fed. When you're sick, all you're hoping for is to be well. Often we, like Peter, settle into a boat ride expecting a smooth journey only for a storm to strike us out of the blue. We, like Peter, take the first steps of faith, yet at the sight of a turbulence, our faith crumbles. We get caught up in the worries of the here and now and miss what God is doing and the greater purpose. So what then is the remedy? What is the cure towards the stubbornness of the heart? that refuses to respond Jesus, to Jesus the right way. Believe it or not, it's not about mustering more faith. It's not about trusting more deeply. Because things will always get in the way. We, our hearts will always be distracted. You see, in Matthew 14, no one truly gets it. Herod didn't. The Nazarenes didn't. The crowd didn't. The disciples didn't. But guess what? Jesus met them in the middle. Friends, we don't figure out the Christian life and then live it. Rather, ours is a journey of faith-seeking understanding because we have a Messiah who came to bear all misunderstandings, all misaccusations, all wrong charges and suffering. Jesus came to seek us. And so rest in our deficiencies of knowledge. Rest in our lack of comprehension. But continue to love, seek, and worship the one who gave his life for us. We can know him because he first knew us. Let's pray. Father God,
Our eyes are so easily distracted. Our heart are so easily pulled away. Lord, we confess uh, our tendencies uh, to miss the mark, our tendencies uh, to be uh, arrogant, stubborn, uh, and to, and in places, many places where we lack faith. But Lord, we praise you for the gospel, Lord, because you didn't need us to qualify for the salvation. Even in our stubbornness, even when we mislabel you, Lord, you came and bear all the pain of misunderstanding, and you gave your life for us on the cross. So as we look to know you more, guide us. Lift us up when we are down. Put us on the right track when we wander off. And we submit our life to growing in our, in our understanding and our love for you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this message. We invite you to learn more about Gospel City Church at gospelcitychurch.my.